0: If a company has the power to decide which products and sellers can exist and compete against it, if they have the power to bury competitors in the search results, as, as Amazon does very similar to Google, which is why Google has gotten in trouble for burying competitors in search results. Amazon does the same thing with its search rankings. That's direct evidence of monopoly power.
1: Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories. This is The Backroom. But first, a word from our sponsor.
0: Today's savviest merchants have figured out how to improve conversion rates by over 50% and average order value by up to 20%. What's their secret? Splitit, a completely different way to think about buy now, pay later. Check out splitit.com forward slash backroom to see how Splitit can help transform your e-commerce business.
1: Hi, welcome to a special episode. We're here with Sally Hubbard. She's Director of Enforcement at the Open Markets Institute, which is a nonpartisan group that advocates for stricter antitrust law enforcement. She's also former Assistant Attorney General of New York from the Antitrust Bureau, and she recently published a book about monopolies. She's also a former colleague of mine from the Capital Forum, which is a policy news and analysis service where we uh, both wrote about antitrust matters. Sally, you've been pretty busy since you and I worked together.
0: I sure have. Great to be here and talk to you today. Well,
1: in your book, you know, you take great pains to sort of spell out for people like why antitrust matters to their own life. And by ordinary people, I mean people who are not antitrust lawyers. Our audience, you know, it's a lot of retail executives, mid-level managers in categories from like home goods, apparel, general merchandise, all across the spectrum, and they might be in marketing, business development, finance, whatever. For people, you know, who are just business people and not necessarily lawyers, not necessarily focused on or even thinking about things like competition policy and in retail specifically, you know, why should they be paying attention? to some of the discussions going on right now about specific companies and you know antitrust generally why does it matter or why should they be paying attention to it in your mind
0: well in my book i was talking mostly to you know the average citizen and consumer and so a lot of the harms that flow from monopoly power were focused on things like higher prices less choice less innovation lower wages less opportunities for entrepreneurship things like that I think folks who work in the retail sector probably have a pretty visceral sense that things are not quite right, that monopolies have taken over. E-commerce and regular commerce and the markets have become very consolidated. And the ways that they might experience that on a daily basis are in, you know, lack of bargaining power and dealing with huge gatekeeper corporations and getting their products and their stores to customers Also, you know, unfair terms of of doing business. The difficulty in competing against a lot of the giants as a retailer has got to be quite front of mind for most people. So I actually think people who work in the retail sector uh, may have a more intuitive sense that, you know, the ability to compete, the ability to innovate, the ability to bring your products to market and reach consumers without having to play on the terms of the big guys has really decreased in recent years.
1: We wrote a story recently, and I I talked with you for that, about the cases against Google and Facebook that the federal antitrust agencies have filed. Do you think those cases can have a large impact on the retail industry depending on how they play out? And they can play out a number of ways.
0: Yeah, I think those cases are kind of only the beginning of what we're going to see. I think we're going to see even more cases filed. I think we're going to see the claims in those cases expanded with added allegations, and we're going to see action out of Congress. But anything that deconcentrates the power of these corporations is good for retail, in my view. You know, right now, any retailer that wants to be found on search has to pay tolls to Google to just appear in search results for their own business name and if we had you know a deconcentrated internet where there were lots of different ways to reach consumers you'd have more bargaining power to pick and choose among which rates you want to pay to advertise so i think the structural separations that that means breakups that's code for breakups that the enforcers are seeking would Have a big impact because we could see a lot of new players coming in. We could see a lot of new innovation and, you know, just the gatekeeper power of these corporations where every business has to pass through their gates and therefore has to do business on their terms would be, really be reduced if retailers had other options and the internet wasn't so centralized. So I do think it could really have an impact on retail if we start to break up the power of these corporations with structural separation.
1: And it's interesting because in the industry, I mean, you'll hear, hear people say either quietly or, or even out loud that Google and Facebook have a digital advertising duopoly you know, there's widespread recognition of how large and and powerful Amazon is, but there seems to be, if there's lobbying, it's quieter than other, you know, other issues that retail, like trade groups and and companies lobby around. It's almost as if they're afraid to wade into antitrust issues, they're afraid of being seen as anti-competitive, or they want to be less competition, or they're seeking government favors. I don't know. Do you, do you see that or?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's incredibly common when you have monopoly rule for there not to be a lot of outright opposition. And that's because they have such power and corporations are afraid of speaking out. They're afraid of retaliation. They're afraid of getting even worse terms if they were to speak out. So I've seen that across all the sectors. It's actually only been in recent years that people have been willing to, to go on the record and speak out against the tech giants for example when i first started writing about them in 2016 writing about all the ways that i believe they're violating the antitrust laws i couldn't get anyone to go on the record it was always a you know a source off, off record source and now we have you know entrepreneurs and businesses actually testifying in congress and they've gotten emboldened by the possibility of action and also some of them have just gotten to the point that they realize if they don't speak out their very survival's at stake and that has emboldened them So you kind of see that fear uh, that's very commonly comes along with monopoly rule of industries. And then you also see, I've noticed in other sectors, a little bit of a, I would say, kind of a Stockholm syndrome, (laughs) when companies just get so used to the rules of the market being the way they are and are struggling on a daily basis to thrive under the rules and don't really have, you know, the bandwidth or resources to try to advocate for uh, the market to be structured in a different way. Rather, they're focused on the day-to-day of succeeding in the market as it is. And so they, they come to accept it over time. I've seen that in, in many industries, not just in retail.
1: You know, it's it's interesting because the way that I hear a lot of retail businesses talk about it and consultants to retailers and retail analysts talk about it, you know, when they, when they talk about, for example, Amazon. And we can kind of talk about whatever antitrust issues might be at play there. But when, when they talk about Amazon, it's how can you be Amazon? How can you gain a competitive advantage? How can you either outmaneuver Amazon or you know, structure your business around Amazon? So it's it's less almost kind of takes the market structure as a given and just kind of work around it as opposed to challenging the market structure.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's because businesses are just trying to succeed on a daily basis. And so that's understandable. I mean, we see that in so many sectors. And I think it would be good to also have advocacy from a trade association, a policy group that can advocate for the best interests of smaller retailers or larger retailers, any retailer that's not Amazon, basically. But, you know, folks are just dealing with the market realities. And that's completely understandable. So, you know, there's people like me who are out there trying to make sure that our markets function and get government to step in and ensure that any company that succeeds is succeeding because it has built a better mousetrap not because it is now stopping others from being able to compete based on the merits of their offerings.
1: Amazon is a, is an interesting case in in retail too because the argument that Amazon makes and other analysts and lawyers make is Amazon is kind of competing against all of retail. And sometimes even they'll even talk about Amazon sales as a share of all retail sales, because Amazon does compete in like nearly every category. That's its whole thing is it's it's the everything store. And in any given category, with, with a few exceptions, like books, they have very little, relatively little market share. If you're talking about comparing even including e-commerce and store sales. You know, more and more, the line between, even if you talk about Amazon's e-commerce market share, the lines between digital sales and physical sales are blending, even among traditional retailers. So it's getting hard to kind of say what the market is. Does that matter from an antitrust perspective, in your view?
0: Yeah, so we hear Amazon and its talking heads say things like, we only have 4% of all retail. We don't have monopoly power. And that's just completely incorrect from an antitrust analysis perspective. It just wouldn't hold up in court for two seconds. The way that antitrust markets are determined, it's called the relevant product market, is based on substitutability and what are the options that consumers can switch to if a monopolist were to raise prices or decrease quality. And if Amazon raises prices on batteries the beauty supply store down the street is not a substitute for, is not an alternative that a consumer would switch to. And in reality is, you know, the switching weights, rates may be quite low uh, because of the lock-in that comes along with the prime membership, right? So in order to actually properly identify the relevant product market for antitrust purposes, you'd need to have a uh, This is where I missed having the subpoena power when I was at the New York AG's office. I would subpoena the switching rates to see what happens when Amazon increases prices or decreases quality on its site in some way. Where do a lot of prime customers switch to other sites and what's the rate at which that occurs? And then you look at those companies that customers switch to for particular products. You're not talking about all the products all the time. Those would be the companies that would be considered part of the relevant product market. But the other thing that's very important to realize is the reason why we look at what is the market is because, let me just step back for one second and explain the main antitrust law we're worried about here is Sherman Act Section 2. That is the law passed way back in 1890 that prohibits illegal monopolization. It just says it's illegal to monopolize markets. And the way the courts have interpreted that is by saying that in order to uh, be guilty of illegally monopolizing, a company has to have two things, monopoly power and have used exclusionary conduct to maintain or grow or acquire that monopoly power. Now, monopoly power is defined as the power to control prices or exclude competitors. We only get into this market definition exercise if we're trying to get indirect evidence of monopoly power. But we can have direct evidence of monopoly power when we see, with our eyes, Amazon actually controlling prices and kicking out competitors. And there is just evidence of that in spades. Amazon... Kicking out any third-party retailer that it doesn't want to be selling a product that it's selling, it just kicks them off the listing. That is direct evidence of monopoly power. We've seen times when Amazon actually took over uh, listings of other companies that other businesses of- were selling products and changed the prices. <laughs> okay, that is called direct evidence of controlling prices. In terms of books, we've seen Amazon change the way authors are paid saying that ebook authors are are paid, that are the self-published authors are paid by the page, by the page that's read instead of by the book. That's direct evidence of monopoly power. So there is abundant evidence that Amazon has monopoly power. The games that they're playing, trying to claim that they don't have monopoly power by construing the market way too broadly in a way that would never hold up with court, just need to be ignored because they're completely irrelevant.
1: From the consumer perspective, you know, what do you say if if someone would ask, "Why do you even need a prime membership?" You know, can the consumer just go to you know Target's website or Walmart's website or go to the you know a brand website? There's this abundance of uh, an abundance of people online trying to sell you stuff. How is Amazon you know a monopoly if there's just competitors everywhere?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, it has to do with the power, like I said, the power to control prices. And and, and to have Monopoly power doesn't mean you have zero competitors. That's kind of a public idea. Uh, Maybe it comes from the Monopoly game. (laughs) But actually, um, you know, it doesn't mean you have zero competitors courts, even when they do the indirect method of finding monopoly power using that market definition exercise, you know, 70% or higher is regularly considered uh, presumptively monopoly power. But like I said, if you have direct evidence, if, if a company has the power to decide which products and sellers can exist and compete against it, if they have the power to bury competitors in the search results, as as Amazon does very similar to Google, which is why Google has gotten in trouble for burying competitors. And search results. Amazon does the same thing with its search rankings. That's direct evidence of monopoly power. So the fact that there are a couple other options out there doesn't mean that there's not monopoly power. And the other important thing to remember is the reason why I personally advocate for antitrust enforcement against Amazon is because of illegal conduct. It's not just that it's big and uh, has built a better mousetrap, it's that it actually enters into all kinds of exclusionary agreements where it tells in the past, it told sellers and brands that they couldn't offer a lower price on a different website. Okay, that's not competing based on merits. That's using your muscle to exclude competition by not allowing there to be price competition. All kinds of exclusionary agreements, all kinds of self preferencing that count as exclusionary conduct under the Sherman Act, because what it is, is it's not competing for an Amazon product versus a different seller's product not competing based on which product is the best, but rather Amazon leveraging its power as a platform, as the gatekeeper to put a huge thumb on the scale in favor of itself. That's what I have a problem with, not the fact that it's a big company that has built a fast delivery network.
1: It's interesting how Amazon has shaped the conversation too, because these days we, and when I say we, I, can, I, I mean the business press and the financial press and the industry more broadly, we kind of talk about legacy retailers as, as underdogs because Amazon has grown so quickly and has uh, scooped up a lot of their business. You know, at the, at the same time, a lot of these same chain stores, 20 or 30 years ago, people criticized for knocking small retailers out of the market. And your organization, Open Markets, put out some research about concentration in, in some retail categories. I think among them was home improvement, craft stores, pet stores have people just kind of moved on? I I, I mean, are, are, again, is there enough competition online that concentration in, in certain retail categories doesn't have the same legal weight or the same market impact? Or is it still a problem in your mind?
0: I mean, I think it depends on what which category. I mean, some of these categories are less like home improvement, I I believe, is less popular online. You know, people still need to have good price competition when your options are, say, Home Depot and Lowe's and the prices are the same at the two or the service and the quality is the same. It's still not giving folks a lot of options. And it is kind of sad. You know, I remember I'm old enough to remember the movie with Meg Ryan and it was all about borders destroying the local bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and then uh,
1: people got nostalgic we, for Borders. <laughs> when I know.
0: Well, then we became nostalgic for Borders. And I was thinking about how actually the destruction of the small local business and replacing it with the big box retailers, many of which were run by private equity and were, ended up being um, having a lot of their resources extracted by the private equity business model so that the level of service became so poor, really set up the conditions for Amazon to take over. Because when you went to a small retailer and you had good quality service, good customer service, good knowledge from the person who was selling you the items, and you also had a sense of community with your local store, there was a lot of value there. But once you get to a big box situation where you don't. Get any kind of decent level of, and I'm not saying all of them are like this, but certainly some of them where the quality of the customer service is so poor. There's nothing really to lose in switching to online. <laughs> when you, you know when you've had no customer service, you get no customer service online either. But now you're used to that, and you're not giving anything up. I think we still do need to worry about the online, the retail concentration in the brick and mortar setting for goods that are primarily sold at a brick and mortar setting. I am personally a bit less worried for the goods that have gone online. And I primarily am concerned about Amazon dictating the rules of the road for all retail. There was one interesting story that I'm not sure you caught or if we've talked about before, where um, when companies were low on inventory when COVID hit, and there were certain products that were in high demand, and there was also slowdowns at factories. There was a report that said that many brands did not send their products to other brick and mortar retailers or even other online retailers. They gave all of their inventory first to Amazon because they couldn't afford to be penalized by the Amazon algorithm, which penalizes brands when they don't have a sufficient inventory and could then throw them off in the search rankings due to the tremendous volume of sales that Amazon accounts for. So that's an interesting, that's not a violation, of the antitrust laws, but that's just an interesting way in which the muscle of Amazon ends up making it harder for other retailers to compete because every you know consumer product company is catering first and foremost to Amazon.
1: Yeah, just broadly, if you had to s- sort of pick an issue across the retail industry that you think is would have sort of the most impact to or change, or, or you think is the most pressing, what do you think is you know the topmost for retail? That you would like to see addressed?
0: Well, what I've been advocating for in Congress is for a, a law structurally separating Amazon and other platforms so that we don't have the platforms controlling both the platform itself and the commerce that depends on the platform to reach consumers. And so for Amazon, that would mean Amazon can be the marketplace but then it can't also be a retailer on the marketplace and it can't be a brand on the marketplace those have to be separate companies broken off divested into separate entities and same thing for Google Google could be the search engine but then it can't be you know vertically integrated into other offerings that it then prioritizes. This is a problem that I call platform privilege. It's the incentive and ability of companies, of platforms to prioritize their own goods and services at the expense of competitors. You know, we really need to restore a level playing field for competition. And so I think if we separate it out into several different companies amazon's marketplace and its brands and its retailing functions that would create a more level playing field for other retailers so that they can compete if they have the best product they can be at the top of the search results and not buried by amazon's competitive products or amazon as a retailer so that's kind of the number one thing that i've been arguing for is a structural separation because really when you have these platforms that are become critical infrastructure of getting to market then you can't have them also um, being market participants it's kind of very similar to what we wanted with net neutrality right just because the broadband companies control the pipes we don't want them to pick the winners and losers and uh, i don't want amazon to pick the winners and losers either i wanted everyone to be able to compete on a level playing field
1: have you ever looked at the apparel market
0: A little bit. I was looking at one time how Amazon was preferencing its own clothing brands. So back at the Capitol Forum, I worked on a report where in this little carousel of recommended items underneath the product, it featured only Amazon brands of of clothing in the carousel instead of other brands. And then I have also heard that a very common, most common searches on Amazon are for like generic things like white shirts. And so you'll see Amazon's products coming up first. It's it's many of its private label brands that you don't even really realize are Amazon brands showing up first in the search rankings.
1: Because I was just going to ask, like, it's something I've thought about and I don't I don't know if it's like truly competitive. But when I look at the apparel market, there are a lot of apparel retailers. I mean, we see a lot of them going bankrupt but part of the reason why they're going bankrupt is because their margins are are so small and they're having to discount like crazy and but there's just so many there's fewer than there were but there's still a lot and both like third-party retailers who who retail other brands like department stores but also brands who, who have their own stores and it just seems like there's a lot of apparel brands there's a lot of apparel retail there's so much and I so many other markets seem very concentrated. So I've just wondered, I, I, I've i never really known sort of the historical reasons for why or if there's or, or structural reasons why or if it's really as competitive as it as it seems, because I imagine a lot of them, a lot of apparel retail gets their clothing manufactured at a much smaller number of factories than the number of stores would make it seem like. But
0: right. I mean, and there's just generally this illusion of choice in all consumer products. I haven't looked specifically at apparel, but you'll see all of these different brands like beer for example. You'll think, "Wow, there's so many different brands of beer." And then you realize it comes down to two companies, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's two mega corporations that control all the brands of beer. I do know that there are some mega corporations in apparel that control, you know, hundreds of brands. But I haven't looked closely at the sector to see, you know, I think there still are a lot of particularly in the high fashion area, you know, designers that come forward, you know, and, and try to make it work. I don't think it's easy by any measure. And I do think the consolidation of ways to get to market online is making it that that plight so much harder because any business that wants to be found by consumers has to get through one main gatekeeper with Google search or one main gatekeeper if they're trying to do social advertising through Facebook, Instagram, and they aren't able to you know, shop for different lower cost options for advertising and getting to consumers. So I think the challenge of reaching consumers is it's just got to be really incredibly expensive uh, for these these smaller brands.
1: Well, and and it could also—I this just occurred to me while you're talking. It could also be, at least to explain the number of brands, it could be a quirk of fashion. It's an area where people like to wear things that are different or new, and you know, designer-based, and where where individual designers have a, have a lot of sway. Maybe that just kind of generates diversity. I saw somewhere someone did a study of the overseas factories where a lot of different goods come from, and you can see you know, a single factory in China or Vietnam, for example, sourcing dozens of different brands, which is not to say that the clothing isn't, Designed differently, it is different, and it's being sold by different companies. But
0: right, I mean, this is what's happening across all the sectors of our economy. Unfortunately, these really highly consolidated supply chains. And actually, President Biden ordered ordered a study into the consolidation of supply chains for critical supplies. Because we saw it with the COVID crisis. You know, we couldn't get enough swabs. How can we not get enough swabs? These are like sticks with cotton on the end of it. How can we not get enough swabs? <laughs> well, because there were two companies in the world making the swabs that we needed for the coronavirus testing, you know? And so it creates this fragility uh, in our supply chains that's uh, incredibly problematic. And so it's, I'm sure, the case in fashion and manufacturing, but it's also the case in, in most of our industries as everything, every company just got, you know, bigger, better, and moved to these different manufacturing business models of just-in-time manufacturing and everything focused on efficiency.
1: I was just going to say what drives so many of these mergers. I mean, if you look in any press release for any merger over the last twenty or thirty years, I, I mean, I don't think there would be, you know, more than a couple that don't mention the word efficiency. I mean, that seems to be what the purpose of a, of a lot of this consolidation. And we're finding that there is a huge trade off between efficiency and resilience. It seems like.
0: Yeah, I talk about this a lot in my book, that that's kind of what went wrong with antitrust law. You know, people are so used to monopoly rule that they don't understand that what these companies are doing is illegal, (laughs) you know? Basically, whenever you see a company that's not competing based on a superior product or service, but rather muscling competitors out of the arena altogether, they're using exclusionary conduct and they're leveraging their monopoly power, and that's a violation of Sherman Act Section 2. But we've had just woeful under-enforcement of the Sherman Act and also merger enforcement, and this started in the 1980s. It was the ideology that came in called the Chicago School of Economics. Some people call it neoliberalism. But the idea was bigger is better. It'll be more efficient. And the antitrust laws are all about delivering corporate efficiency, which will benefit consumers because they'll pass on these lower prices to consumers. These corporations are going to get so efficient. They're going to have all these cost savings and they're just going to pass those savings on to consumers. And this is the purpose of antitrust law. This is what has gone where our antitrust laws have gone completely astray for the last 30, 40 years. And so, anytime anyone could showed that it was efficient, it was waved through, even though it violated the Clayton Act, which is the law that prohibits mergers that may lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly. Okay? So the the plain text of our statutes has been completely ignored in you know service to this uh, religion of efficiency. And now you know we've had. 30 40 years of this experiment and we've seen it's a huge failure even on its own terms it doesn't deliver lower prices to consumers what it does is create these giant corporations that don't have an incentive to reduce prices to consumers also don't have as much incentive to innovate as they would if they had competition and then we have very fragile systems uh, because we have all of our eggs consolidated in a few baskets and then you know as i was mentioning at the beginning We have less opportunities for entrepreneurs because they just get muscled out of the way. We have less opportunities for workers because they have fewer employers competing for their labor. And that's why we've seen this wage stagnation in recent decades as well. So it's time to bring antitrust law back to its original intention, which is preserving competition and preventing concentrated economic and political power. And that's where the movement is now, thankfully, and hopefully we'll see some changes.
1: Can you realistically see the government actually breaking up a company anytime in the next few years? It's been so long since it's yeah happened. It would it would it would be a shock, I think, to businesses to see it happen.
0: Yeah, it has been a long time. The last big you know kind of tech company breakup was AT and T in nineteen eighty two. We did have the big antitrust case against Microsoft, which didn't end up with a breakup that was on the table, but then the Bush administration came to power and took that off the table. But if it weren't for that enforcement, we probably wouldn't have Google today because Microsoft was using its muscle to keep competitors out of the browser market, and it would have just taken that on to the logical next step, which is keep any competitor out of the search engine market once it controlled the browser market. So, you know, we did see innovation as a result of that enforcement. With the AT&T breakup, we saw AT&T became more valuable. We saw bursts of innovation. You know, we saw increased consumer choice. And, and the funny thing is, uh, while it has been a long time since an enforcer broke up or, uh, or a lawmaker or an enforcer broke up a corporation, activist investors do it all the time.
1: They love it. they love it when it's that's. It I mean, so it's not about,
0: it. it's not about destroying shareholder value. It's about unlocking the grip that these corporations have when they become these conglomerates and they can just keep pushing levers and and uh, pulling levers to distort competition in whatever markets touch their monopoly power. And so that's what we need to kind of unlock the, you know, gridlock that we have in our economy just so it can get more dynamic. And we can get, you know, lower prices, more choice, more innovation, more dynamism, more new firm creation. So I think it will happen because we've gotten to a point where smaller measures just aren't going to work. And we've seen that with Europe's enforcement against Google, for example. They have not done breakups. They've required behavioral conditions, things like treat your competitor equally to you treating yourself, but uh, without you know, any removal of the conflicts of interest that are inherent in the way they're structured. And they've been a complete failure. It's just too hard to monitor. They have too many levers to pull. And so we really have reached to a a point where anything short of structural separation won't solve the problems. Although breakups are just step one and are not on their own going to solve the problems entirely.
1: Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Sally. It's been great chatting.
0: Thank you for having me. I, I've enjoyed your coverage of the sector, and I, I hope we have a more competitive retail sector soon.